suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove and Joe the Tech Guy. We're back, the three of us, episode 409. If you're in the chat room like James is, say hello. Yes, another episode where we're going to talk about uh, news and politics and sex and religion. Don't know if there'll be that much sex or religion in this one. Lots of talk about tax, I reckon. Lots of, you know, polls about tax. Tax in New Zealand, an inquiry in Victoria about about property, which then entails tax. So tax, 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 maybe, is what this episode's going to look at. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. The Iron Fist, coming in loud and clear. From regional Queensland, Scott the Velvet Glove. Scott, how are you? Not too bad, thanks, Trevor. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Joe. G'day, listeners. I hope everyone's well. And Joe has flicked over to a different system. He's 4 or 5G or something because the other system wasn't working. Hopefully, we won't have any mishaps along the way. Joe, with a schnitzel under your belt, having had a trip to Munich, I gather you're fine. I am, morning all. Mm. You were telling us you had a schnitzel for breakfast and a schnitzel for lunch. Lunch, dinner, dinner whatever it was. Okay. Yes, whilst in Munich, you have to. Yes, while in Rome. Yes. <laughs> right. So, yes, we're going to talk about uh, some polls, talk about things that happen in New Zealand, a um, little bit about submarines, can't miss that out. Inflation, I've been making a mistake about inflation, got to rectify that. And small modular nuclear reactors and Gina Reinhardt's Christmas wish, amongst other things. So let's kick it off. Now, who was it last week? I was talking about the trolley, wheeling the trolley into the cabinet room. Oh, yeah. Joe. Right. Yeah, it's Joe. So I came across an article in John Menadue blog from Jack Waterford talking about that whole situation. And apparently it was invented... By Kevin Rudd. Did you know that? Not till I read the article, no. Mm. So Jack Waterford, writing in the John Menendew blog, was talking about um, how our current Attorney General, when looking at the RoboDead inquiry, decided there were 56 recommendations rather than 57, and the fact that the 57th was this thing about freedom of information and trying to give the public better access to it. And he says that this was, you know, really the recommendation 57 was about dropping the Rudd trolley as a claim of exemption. And he says that the Rudd trolley was invented by a young public servant working in the office office of Wayne Goss, Kevin Rudd, in the post-Fitzgerald days in the early 80s. In the fervour of reform, Goss had committed himself to a Queensland Freedom of Information Act in operation, it proved deeply inconvenient. It was a bit too liberal and embarrassing material was being given out. And then 
they decided to put any embarrassing papers on a trolley and wheel them through the cabinet room and claim they were cabinet documents. Naturally, the rule was widely admired and copied by public servants everywhere. So the Rudd trolley, apparently, that's where mm. it originated. Mm. <coughs> that doesn't surprise me. Mm. Mind you, you know, the Goss government was a good one, Goss state government. I mean, Absolutely, it was. Yeah. Coming in after all those years of J.B. Jockey Peterson uh, mm. it was such a relief. Um, good guy, died early, cancer, Wayne Goss. Mm. Yeah, it was um, brain cancer, wasn't it? I think it might have been. Yeah, Mm. and Kevin Rudd was one of the guys in his office. Um, Mm. He then went on to bigger and better things. Polls, news poll. So news poll came out with an article, well, it was reported in The Australian. The coalition leads Labor on the primary vote 38 to 31%. On a two-party preferred basis, Labor and the Coalition are neck and neck at 50% each. Surprise you there, Scott or Joe? Uh, Not especially, but, you know, there is a long time between now and the next election. Um, I think that the... The loss on the referendum will be forgotten by then, so then you'll be able to move forward then. And when people actually have to sit down and make a decision between Dutton and Albanese, it's a no-brainer you're going to go with Albanese because, you know, it's only a matter of time before Chalmers takes the job. Jobs and growth. No, Jim Chalmers. Jim Chalmers takes the job from Albanese. Yeah, he won't actually knife him or anything like that. I just think to myself, he's probably the he's probably the logical successor. Right. Because he, he, you think people's vote of the next election will be determined by their feeling that Chalmers will come in to replace Albanese? Well, it's one of those things. I think that's something that would be playing on their mind because they'd think to themselves, "Oh God, I can't give Dutton the shot." Mm. So they're going to think to themselves, "We've got to give we've got to give Albanese another go." But that's okay because if he fails, then Chalmers will take the job. Mm. Well, I think I, it's I just... do see that the Murdoch rags have been heavily after Albanese, trying to wedge him, especially about this asylum seeker thing. Mm. About you know, great headlines about how Dutton has held Albanese to account, and oh my God, you know, just wheel out the it's all Peter Dutton's fault excuse, Mister Albanese. Why don't you? Yep, but then the News Corp papers. And the Fairfax did that to Dan Andrews. He completely oh. ignored them. He never gave them any interviews. He just ran his own show on his own social media and won handsomely every time because he just didn't pander to them. But he, you know, led and actually did stuff that people could point to. So he also got know, on the beers. Yes, fell down a set of stairs. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. No, no, no. The, the the song "Get on the Beers." I don't think uh, did his image any harm. Right. But you you, you remember the mix up from COVID? No, no, I don't remember. Okay. When he said, he said, when he, said he, he said that he said, "Look, this is not an excuse for you to get out and get on the beers." So this guy did a mash up for it and said, "You know, get on the beers, get on the beers, get on the beers." Mm. Anyway, yeah. check it out on YouTube. I just yes. think it's an indictment of. Of this Albanese government that they've just they're done very nothing. soft. 
and it was such, very soft. You, you know, know, they haven't they haven't done anything that you can point to and say, well, this is something Albo has done, hmm. because he's nothing. He has. I never liked his. I never liked his position on very fast trains. But Jesus Christ, I would give something to have something that I could point to and say, okay, this is a policy. But he has done nothing. He hmm. has rolled over on everything that was objectionable that the coalition government wanted through, and he has agreed with it. If you think it's, of how on the nose the Morrison government was yeah, and how pathetic Dutton has been, mm-hmm. and despite all of that, if, if you'd have said after the last election that come this time it would have been two-party preferred and even a horse race, I'd have thought would have laughed way. at you. Yeah. 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 So it's been a really... Amazingly poor performance. I know it's been it's been pathetic, actually. Mm. So. Anyway, it's just one of those things. It's. I would have thought that by the time people actually have to make their mind up, they're going to actually go with Albanese ahead of Dutton. But mm. I think that I think that Albanese can't feel comfortable because I suspect that the Greens are possibly going to pick up a couple of extra seats, which will then give That's them what five. They said. In, it would be a Labour minority government. Yes. So it would mean a coalition with the Greens, and I don't see a problem with that. Mm. Yeah. I don't either. But if you're a Labour person, you should be furious at how pathetic this mob have been to allow that to happen. So, yeah. So that's interesting from Newspoll. Now, Essential Poll has come out with some interesting stuff, and I reckon it showed a surprising willingness on the part of the Australian population to explore some new taxes and new initiatives. So people were asked, to what extent do you support or oppose the following measures? Capping prices for electricity and gas. Uh, we've got 70% of people either strongly or somewhat supporting it. Actually, 42% strongly supporting looks like about maybe 9% against. So that's capping electricity and gas. Placing limits on rental increases. We've got 62% in favour, only 14% against the rest of so that. So that 14% of the uh, property owners? Maybe, yes. <laughs> A tax on retailers making excessive profits, 56% in favour and only 15% against. A one-off levy on the incomes of people earning more than a million dollars a year. We've got uh, 53% in favour, and we've got only 17% against. Like, these to me sound like fairly radical proposals. Well, the the first two are free money for the average person, so of Mm. course people are going to vote for it. And, Mm. And the last one is more money coming in and it's not coming out of my pocket for the average person. So, mm. again, not a surprise. Well, but it does smack well, of a type of socialism. Green policy. Mm. Yes. I, I think it's just a strong number. When you consider that, what did we say previously just now, that two-party, just on uh, the coalition was leading Labor 38 to 32. So there's 38% mm. of people out there are coalition voters, but only, you know, minimal numbers were against these, you know, Labor slash, well, green policies, really. So 
Yeah, yeah I but thought there was a strong this response. Is, this is the small business owner that thinks they're better off under a coalition government yeah. without realising that actually all the value goes to the big end of town, not the little end of town. Yeah. Well, strong numbers of people in support of capping prices on electricity and gas, placing limits on rental increases, taxing retailers for making excessive profits, and a one-off levelling on people earning more than a million dollars a year. Like, pretty strong stuff. Here's some more tax measures. Prevent wealthy families from using family trust to split their assets. 55% in favour, only 15% against. Here's a good one. Only allow people to claim negative gearing tax concessions on one investment property. We've got 47% in favour, only 16% against. And taxing deceased estates worth more than $5 million, 40% in favour, 18, no, 26% against. Let me just repeat those figures. So that was 40% in favour and 26% against taxing deceased estates worth more than $5 million. So, Scott, the rest we don't know. Tax on deceased estates, inheritance tax. Mm -hmm. Who'd have thought? No, no, a death tax. Come on, get it right. Yeah, no. well, whatever you want to call it, but on on one on as, on estates worth more than five million, um, does that surprise you that so many people are in no. favour? Because how many right. people are actually going to inherit five million dollars in one go? I think that's yeah. I think that's the total that's the total value of the estate. Five million dollars yeah. is the threshold. Yes. Then after that, you got to yeah. then got to divvy it up and all that type of thing. I'm not surprised at all by that because it's like like Joe said, not a lot of people are actually going to fall into that category. So they think to themselves, well, it's not going to affect me, so I don't care. Mm. Still, I reckon in the past people would, you know, it, in, like in America, for example, they're against taxing millionaires because mm. every American considers that, that they're just a temporarily and- disadvantaged um, millionaire who's down on their luck and, you know, come next year they will be in that class so they don't want millionaires taxed. Yes. Maybe Australians have given up and have gone, well, at the current rate things are going. It's clearly not going to apply to me, so <clears throat> let's do it. I, I think well, Australians are more pragmatic. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> right. Finally, the stage three tax cuts. Mm. So... People were asked, uh, the tax changes should go ahead as planned. 20% of people agree. The tax changes should go ahead for those earning less than 200000 but not for people earning more than 200000 22% of people agreed with that. The tax changes should be revised so they mostly benefit those on low and middle incomes, 41%. And the tax changes should not go ahead at all, 16%. So the government's current policy of, of just doing what the coalition was going to do and, and just going ahead with those tax cuts, only 20% of Australians agree with it, yet that's what they're going to do anyway. So risky territory for Labor. It is for sure. Mm. It's one of those things. It was a bloody stupid thing that he did. Well, mm. no, because it meant that then 
Murdoch press couldn't lambast him for increasing taxation and run mm. a scare story. But he's yeah, but what's the point of being in the power? What is the point of being actually, in power? Had he actually said, he said, look, had he actually said, look, if we win this, if we win this, we're going to have a look at them. Then he would have actually said, well, we, we said we're going to have a look at them. We've had a look at them. We've decided they're far too generous, so they're going to be paired back. And then he could actually say, look, we didn't destroy them completely. We kept these, but these 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 gargantuan tax cuts for the very wealthy have got to go. I I, I wonder how much Labor is now beholden to the big end of town. Well, it's that right wing of the Labor Party with Richard Miles that is running the show and the left-wing Albanese faction just has to do whatever they want to yeah. as part of their Sounds deal. Sounds awfully familiar. Malcolm yeah. Turnbull, anybody? Yeah, yeah. It does, doesn't it? It's so grim. Oh, just, just think after all these years and all the struggle and you finally get into the position you wanted to be in if you're Albanese and then you just do nothing. I just think, oh, how can you live with yourself? Anyway, well, just, how do you sleep at night? It's one of those things. I think Richard Marr is going to rue the day when they have to go into coalition with the Greens. Well, uh, anyway. Because the Greens are not going to roll over like that. Mm. The Greens are going to no. insist. The Greens are going to insist that they are going to have a look at. They're going to have a look at AUKUS. They're going to have a look at stage three tax cuts, and they're actually going to do something on that. You know, it might, it might like be a what, good reason to vote Green, doesn't it? it? It might be what Albanese needs that he can just say to the right wing. Richard Marles section faction and say, sorry, guys, but we're in a coalition with the Greens and we just have to do this stuff now. This is the best deal we could get. What a mm. shame. Like maybe it'll be good all round. It gives them an excuse. Yes. Yes. Yeah. To get what uh, done. I suppose it depends on how mm. likely that that could end up splitting the Labor Party with the right-wing faction running off to join the LNP, which no right wing very faction. Long. Right-wing faction of Labor isn't going to run off to join the LNP. Like that's mm. that's not going to happen. Well, no, no, no. That, 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 they'll join the Australian Conservatives. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I can remember talking about smoking laws oh, way back in the beginning of this podcast and and talking about the idea that, that you should really just have a cut-off date and say, okay, from now on, anyone who's um, – 18 years or younger, can't buy a cigarettes. And then next year, it'll be people 19 years and younger. And then the following year, it'll be 20 and under. As a way of trying to allow adults who are currently smoking to continue if they must, but trying to just put a stop to this, this habit that's just killing people. And anyway, New Zealand had adopted that plan and... So legislation was introduced under the Jacinda Ardern-led government that would ban cigarette sales next year to anyone born after 2008. And Modelinger suggested that the laws would save up to 5,000 lives every year. And it's even inspired the UK government to announce a similar ban for young people for smoking. Problem is... There's a new national party and this, none of this was mentioned in the run-up to the election, but apparently one of the things they're going to do is get rid of this proposed law before it actually gets started 
And one of the reasons is that that the National Party, which won 38% of the vote, is in a is in a coalition with two other parties, and the other parties wanted this law removed. And well, the Libertarian Party did. Yes. Did you know that they're going to share the role of the Deputy Prime Minister? So one of the coalition partners, the leader, I think it's that Winston character, is going Winston to be... Peters. Yeah, he's going to be deputy for 18 months. And then the leader of the other party is going to be the deputy for the next 18 months. That's how they're going to share the role of deputy. That's unique. Mm. But anyway, that's what's going to happen and it's being sold to the electorate as a good idea because they need the tax. <laughs> and, and, and also small businesses were going to lose out. Yes. So so we, we carry on killing people because small businesses will struggle if we don't sell poison yes. to. Yes, that's right. We did it say that. Yeah, news agents and other groups like that had complained. Yeah. We can't sell these because we can't sell these cancer inducing killing sticks. We're not making as much money. So this is a bad law. There we go. That's happening in New Zealand. Uh, the other thing from New Zealand negative gearing and capital gain stuff on properties. So. So they ditched negative gearing in 2021 and changes to capital gains um, have been being made since 2015 in New Zealand. And if you want to know what effect that has on properties and mortgages, there's a chart on the screen. The top line, um, so this is, um, oops, no, sorry, don't show that one. Thank you, Joe. This is showing the proportion of, of property lending to different groups. So the biggest group um, are the owner-occupiers. These are people not buying their first home but with a mortgage on their, on their second or third or whatever sort of principal place of residence. Back in 2015, investor loans were 30% of the loan market, and first-home buyers were 10%. And that was in 2015. Now, as these changes have taken effect, first-home buyers as a percentage of the loan market are around the 25%, up from 10, and the investor component has dropped from 30 down to about 18. So changing the laws the tax laws to make it less attractive for investors has ended up with a result where there's less investors borrowing, presumably less investors owning property. I can only assume is the case. It has an effect. So there we go. That's, that's New Zealand. And apparently there was a Victorian inquiry into rental and housing affordability. Guess what it recommended? Scrap the first home buyer's grant. Why did it recommend that? I'll give you one guess, dear listener. Because it boosts inflationary. <laughs> it's an inflationary effect on property prices. And instead, use the money 
to build um, social housing dwellings, 60,000 of them, and lobby the government, the federal government, to examine these tax concessions for investment properties. Those were the recommendations from the inquiry. No surprises there. So, um, although with rent caps, they were looking at rental price regulation and the inquiry said, although rental freezes provide obvious benefits to renters, the committee believes that they should only be considered as a short-term solution in extreme times, such as during the COVID-19 pandemic. And according to the inquiry, there is inconsistent evidence on the long-term efficacy of rental caps. <coughs> so, question mark over the effectiveness of rental yeah, caps. The, the big long-term experiment is um, New York with their fixed... There are, there are a certain number of residences that are fixed rental costs, mm. and it generally means that maintenance doesn't get done on them, and... Uh, it's it's not necessarily been good for the, the property. Yep, landlords the sort of give up on properties and wait for the tenant to die. Is that kind of what happens? Yeah, because I think they're allowed to change the rent once the tenant moves out. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. It's one of those things. It's it all sounds very good, but when you actually look at it, it's not all that great. Yeah, and so, you end up we end up with people living in slum conditions and all that sort of stuff, still having to pay rent. Mm. So the inquiry is suggesting that only as a short-term solution in extreme times for sort of the rental freezes. So that all makes sense, yeah. So what would be an extreme time? Would they consider the, the current rental crisis and all that sort of stuff, would they consider that to be an extreme time or not? I think the Greens do. So yeah. the Greens are reported as saying, the report found that a rent freeze is appropriate in times of extreme crisis like during COVID lockdowns. Well, renters are worse off now than since the pandemic became, began, so it's time to act. I guess given the high immigration numbers and the lack of housing on the market, they've got an argument. Yeah, it's one of those things that's... Hmm. I think we have a long, sensible discussion about what, what a level of immigration is, is, what an acceptable level of immigration is. But you've actually got to do it without Pauline Hanson and all that type of thing because she'll just be beating the drum and that type of thing. It's just, you know, we've got to get nurses and all that sort of thing from other overseas because we don't train enough of them here and but, it's just a hell of a mess. But, but also we've got all the baby boomers retiring mm. and yeah. they didn't have as many kids. So yeah. you, you need a young demographic in paying tax Otherwise, exactly. So you've got to bring them in from overseas. It's not heavy. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. it's one of those things. We've actually got to – that's why I said we've got to have a sensible conversation about it so that you get rational debates and then you've actually got to make a decision about it because, mm. you know, I think it's – what was it, three or 300 or 500,000 migrants or something like that are aiming, they're aiming to bring in over the next 12 months? That's a hell of a lot. Mm. When we seem yeah. to be short on places to put people. Yes, uh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, for the landowners, you've got to force the property prices up somehow. Yeah. But, and again, there, there have been a number of reports saying that there isn't a shortage of places. That they're just unoccupied. Yes. Vacant. Yes. I've heard conflicting and, and things on that. Land approved for construction, but 
that the owners are sitting on it till the value increases. They yes. don't want to. They don't want to glut the market. Yes, land banking. So developers mm. will not will not develop the lots because if they put, you know, five hundred lots on the market, the price would drop. Whereas if they drip feed the market, um, the price was will be maintained. So yeah, there see, is that that's argument. where you, you've just actually got to actually yeah. say to people, well, this this lot's been. This block of land is now available for development. You've got twelve months to actually carve it up. Otherwise, we'll we'll yep. take back, we'll take it back from you and that type of thing. Use it or lose it. I, exactly. I remember, I remember saying that on census night there was one million properties vacant, but apparently that figure is not quite right. I'll come back to that another time. But I do remember hearing that and then hearing that that was a misleading statistic. So, right, just briefly on submarines. Because this is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. This and, is the uh, submarine podcast. This is the submarine podcast. So Scott Morrison negotiated the AUKUS submarine deal, claiming it was necessary to achieve a credible deterrent against China. And Anthony Albanese agreed with that. However, US Congressional Budget Office has a problem with that assertion because the US is having to sell Australia three to five of its existing nuclear submarines, and they're short of submarines. And in theory, there is no guarantee that Australia will release or provide those submarines in a war against China. So... The Congressional Budget Office is saying, we're short on submarines. We're going to give three to five of them to the Australians who are not necessarily going to use them against the Chinese. Therefore, the deterrent effect of this policy from the Chinese point of view would be to worry less about a submarine threat than if the deal wasn't there, which makes sense. If we want deterrence, really, nuclear weapons is the way to go. Yes. We yeah. can do that. Why not? <laughs> You're right. They might be stupid enough. Well, because there'll be a coalition Labor-Greens government next election mm-hmm. and the Greens won't allow it. That's why, Joe. Okay. Yeah. But I like this. I like this theory that if the whole point of the submarines is as a deterrent and you've decided to carve off a section of the fleet to a country who suddenly may not employ them the way you want to against China, you've actually reduced your deterrent effect. Makes well, sense. No, no. So, so deterrent for the Americans, but deterrent for the Australians. So there's no guarantee that America is going to step in if China tries to invade Australia. Yes. Whereas if we have the submarines, in theory, we're controlling them to stop the Chinese Navy. Yes, I don't think the Chinese are worried about us acting unilaterally with our no. submarines. So from the Chinese point of view, happy days. Those stupid Westerners, they've just split their feet, fleet up when they're short on subs. Subs are less of a threat is the overall impression that the Chinese would have. Correctly, See, what you I need. Think. What you need is American businesses in the north of Australia (laughs) so that America will step in if there's any chance of them losing their businesses. Well, they will, but the problem is they've given three to five of their submarines to us. Right. So so that's 
that's the assessment that the Americans have made, that they've reduced their deterrent effect. So I think it's a compelling argument. Um, it's undercut deterrence of China, exactly the opposite of the claims of Scott Morrison and Albanese. Right, I've been talking about interest rates and inflation, and I've been saying that if when the Reserve Bank raises interest rates, then the interest is part of the basket of goods that's used to calculate CPI. And that's not correct. So my son, Zach, got me on that the other day. And we've actually said this way back in episode 363, so I'd forgotten we'd said that. But before 1998, the CPI measured interest paid on mortgages. But this was changed at the behest of the Reserve Bank, which didn't want its measure of inflation to go up every time it raised interest rates. So that was late 1998, CPI measured interest on mortgages, but it stopped. So since then... I'd cocked out because I thought thought it was right. Mm. So since then, the Bureau has measured owner-occupiers' housing costs by taking the price of building a new house or unit... This doesn't make much sense since not many people buy a newly built home each quarter. So they've been measuring housing costs by the price of new houses and new units. But the Bureau also calculates a separate cost of living index, which uses the same prices as the CPI, but restores mortgage interest rates into that calculation and uses slightly different weights to take account of different spending patterns of particular household types. So probably the more accurate measure would be the cost of living index as opposed to the CPI. So so there we go. Interest doesn't actually make its way into the CPI. It makes its way into the cost of living index. I've been misleading you for the last month or so on that one, but we did actually say... Either way, it is inflationary. Mm. Yes. So, So that was that part. Causes of inflation. Anthony Albanese says inflation is part of a global phenomenon. The Reserve Bank says it's largely homegrown. And um, Miss Bullock, I think she's the current head of the RBA. Yep, Michelle Bullock. Yep. She said early driver of inflation was supply chain problems during COVID-19 pandemic, worsened by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But on Wednesday, she said there's several signs that inflation was domestically driven and at risk of remaining elevated. She said it's not just petrol, electricity and rent. Quote, this is from the Reserve Bank, hairdressers and dentists, dining out, sporting and other recreational activities. The prices of all these services are rising strongly, she said. Hang on, a dentist is recreation, is it? (laughs) No, hairdressers and dentists, dining out, sporting and other recreational activities. Well, exactly. She says, this reflects domestic economic conditions and is an indication that aggregate demand is sufficiently greater than aggregate supply to sustain these price increases. So, you consumers out there going to the dentist, 
increased demand without an increased supply of dentists is leading to a, a rise in the price of dental services. Honestly, these Reserve Bank people, they just did Economics 101 with supply and demand curves and, and that's the only way of thinking. Yeah, but I can understand what you're saying, but what she was saying was right, though. You know, you you don't have an increase in dentists and all that sort of stuff. You've got an increase in demand for dentists, so there's going to be an increase in the price. Could it be that people have just been putting off dental stuff because they had to? Yeah, I know and, that. Yeah. I know that, but it's one of those and, things. You, and, you've got, and, if you look at it purely in supply and demand, the demand for dental dental procedures goes up. The supply of dentists doesn't move, so the only thing that can move is the price. Yeah, but the RBA approaches this as a as a rampant economy that's spending too much, and yeah, needs to be reined. Exactly what, it needs to yeah, be reined in. Yeah, which is exactly in. what they what they've done. And, and it just yeah. doesn't make sense that people are willy nilly getting dental services and need yeah, to be reined true. in by. Higher interest yeah, the, rates. Th- this is not discretionary spending. To curb spending. their dental express expenses. Yeah. And same with hairdressers. Like, I don't know, I imagine a lot of the cost of the hairdressers is the various creams and dyes and whatnot. Yeah, you would probably don't have to worry about that, Joe, yeah, <laughs> as you're rubbing your head. Could it be that it's the cost of the various ointments and bits and pieces that they're using that um, the rent up. on the, the rent and on their place and all yeah, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. Rather than just everybody suddenly increase their demand for hairdressing services. Yeah. Well of course they true. had they they were all doing their barber stuff at home during lockdown. Yes. So everybody being released out from the community, everybody now needs a haircut. And obviously that's inflationary. Yeah. Because they yeah. weren't before COVID. Yeah. Yeah, there are more people having more haircuts now since COVID. Yes. It just strikes me as people who are out of touch and relying on very simple supply and demand models that don't necessarily apply well to what's really happening. So anyway, there was a an article from the – it was either The Chaser or The Batuta or somebody, the headline was – Selfish young person apologises for driving up inflation, but you just can't really ignore a root canal. That's where we're at. Ah, is John in the chat room? Because I'm about to talk about small modular nuclear reactors. Doesn't look like he's there. Chris Bowen. He's our... Energy Minister. Energy Minister. He says, we respect other countries' plans, but in Australia's context, nuclear for Australia is a fantasy wrapped in delusion accompanied by pipe dream. And there's an article in The Guardian. So the only company to have a small modular nuclear power plant approved in the US, and this has been cited by the Australian opposition as evidence of a burgeoning global nuclear industry, it's had to cancel the project due to rising costs. New Scale Power announced plans, announced a drop plans to build its its small modular nuclear reactor. 
And essentially, the figures just don't add up. They couldn't get enough people to commit to buying the electricity. The cost of producing the plant um, accelerated way beyond what was originally planned. And uh, it just doesn't add up. So industry experts say that SMRs, small modular reactors, are not commercially available, that nuclear energy is more expensive than alternatives and in a best-case scenario could not play a role in Australia for more than a decade and probably not before 2040. And the Australian energy market operator found renewable energy could be providing 95% of the country's electricity by that time. So, so yeah, as Don says, fusion is the answer because... Fusion is always 20 years off, yes. which serves the purpose of a nuclear reactor, which is to delay renewables and keep burning fuel, fossil fuel. Yeah. Yes. One of the great things about renewables is everybody having it on their house, it decentralises power. Both but the power isn't. literally and power of the, large the corporations. The grid isn't designed for that, unfortunately. Mm. It's, yeah, it's I know. See, I had the other day. I was at home and that sort of stuff, and I realised my air conditioner in the lounge room turned off, and I thought to myself, "What the hell was that?" Because everything else was still working, and then I realised the power is being turned off. So that was the only sign that I had was the electricity had been cut off to my house because the air conditioner in the lounge room died. So because my battery and everything like that, it just kicked in and just kept the electricity flowing to my house. But for some reason, they haven't got my they haven't got my air conditioner in the lounge room hooked up to the bed to the battery. But, well, yeah. probably because it's too big. Mm. So a battery can only supply so much power, and an air conditioner uses a lot of power. Yeah, I know, but so it draws the, the air conditioner draws from your solar panel. Yeah, it does. Right, but not from the battery. Right. Yeah. Hmm. There we go. But, you know, it's just one of those things. I just noticed that when the, like it's only happened twice up here, but when the electricity is cut off, I notice that the air conditioner in the lounge room dies, but everything else still works. Mm. So that's how I know that the power has been turned off. Mm. And when the electricity is, is still running to the house and all that sort of stuff, I'm still drawing I'm still drawing electricity on everything out of that from my battery. Anyway, mm. it's just is what it is. Mm. Now, it's one of those things I, I I see up here there are a lot of houses that are getting solar on their roof and I just think to myself that's a very good thing because um, that will play very much into the hands of the state government because all that surplus electricity that's going to be produced will be used to pump the water back up to the main dam then it'll flow down to the through the uh, what the hell's in through the hydro pumped hydro turbines yes mm, pumped yeah. hydro so it's going to mm. run down through the hydro but generators that, that's if they actually build the pumped hydro i know they've Not talked really, about it but no, it's pretty much announced as a done there was i don't think there's any hesitation okay, it's, on that. A, it's yeah. a done deal but mm. has it started i don't know no it hasn't started yet yeah. but it ha they, ha they have actually I gather they've already set aside the land and that sort of stuff. I gather the government's already in purchase mode and that sort of thing to purchase the land from the landholders and then after that it'll be over. Mm. 
Mm. Anyway, that's small nuclear reactors. Gina Reinhart, this one came from the Courier-Mail. She's called on the federal government to give the nation a Christmas bonus in the form of a petrol excise tax cut. According to Ms Reinhart, every few dollars counts for people in tough times. With the stroke of a pen, the government could deliver minor short-term relief to millions by cutting the petrol tax for households. Ooh, Isn't that lovely of Gina? We could, to be of- <laughs> we could fund it by removing the the benefits that mining companies get for their fuel. So we could actually mm. move the tax cuts away from the mining companies to the small individuals, mm. and that would have zero impact on net revenue from the, the budget. Mm. Uh, so mining yeah. companies get a special tax deal, do they? Yeah. Do they not pay the excise? The excise. They don't pay any excise on Basic. their off-road vehicles. Or, or they pay a yeah. reduced excise, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I don't think they pay anything on their off-road vehicles. So mm. the, the diesel that goes into those trucks and that sort of stuff, they don't pay any excise on that. It's good of Gina to be thinking of this, you know, of the little people. She says no oh, one's shit. asking. Fat she, bitch. She says nobody's <laughs> asking for a handout. We just need the government to take less money from Australians. She says... I have long spoken out about Australians being overtaxed and overcharged by government, which has its roots in excessive government spending. <laughs> she- yeah, yeah <laughs> because rich people tend to pay more tax than poor people and rich people use less services than poor people, so they want to pay less tax to fund poor people. She says, we teach children far more about cutting emissions and woke agendas than we do about mining that powers Australia's economy and enables those Australians employed in the industry to have some of the highest wages in the world. The resources industry contributes more corporate tax than all other industries combined. It's mining taxes that pay for our government, teachers, police, nurses, non-voluntary firefighters and emergency services. Gentlemen, do you know why the resources industry contributes more corporate tax than all other industries combined? Because it's the only co- it's the only the only industry that's making but, money. No, because they believe that the stuff they mine out of the ground uh, is, is tax. It, it, they're not buying raw materials; they're being taxed. So every any other sector, its raw materials are a cost, not a tax, no. and that's why they claim it's the highest tax. The reason is they can't offshore their profits. Well, that's, that's true. So it? they're digging rocks out of Australian soil and it's really hard for them to set up international agreements where they get charged IP services and other stuff that they can shift their profits offshore. So well, that's why they're so. actually paying tax is they can't offshore their income. To, well, to, the other thing, BHP's had a red hot go at it. They've done their, they've moved their accounts uh, receiving function to. over to Singapore. Yeah, but Gina, who says Australian miners are some of the highest paid um, workers, mm. she wanted to change that. She wanted to excise the whole of North Australia from the human resources laws, whatever they're called, yeah. the industrial relations things, so that she could bring in cheap labour from overseas. Are you suggesting she's hypocritical? Yeah, of course she's a hypocrite. She's just a teeny evil. amount. Mm. She's an evil bitch. Mm. We mentioned Argentina and the crazy new president they've president. got there. Mm. 
He has signalled that he may exonerate Argentina's imprisoned dictatorship officers. Um, he said that the military were guilty only of excesses. Um, the 1976 dictatorship, which Millet is keen to reappraise, imposed policies similar in many ways to his, including a semi-de-dollarisation. Um, there's 1,200 convicted dictatorship officers. And anyway, I think we mentioned last week, not sure if we did, or well, last time we spoke about it, was it's all going to go to shit in Argentina and it'll end up with the military getting involved. And this is just further evidence to me that the military's going to get involved. So he wants Be- officers on his side. <laughs> Correct. He's going to get them all out of jail and get the military on side for when the things go to shit, he'll be able to employ them to keep his regime operating. That's, I think, where we're headed in Argentina. Mm. That's a real worry. You know, I could. I said at the time, I said <clears> last <throat> week when we were talking about it, I said that I could understand the Argentines that had a gut full of Perrinism, but, you know, to go this far to the other side was just ridiculous. Mm. Uh, I was hoping I would see it today. The High Court supposedly today was going to come out with its reasons about the detention decision it made. That I thought ended it was up, tomorrow. Yeah, I thought it was going to be today. So okay. we'll wait till next week and talk in depth about the actual decision and the reasons behind it. So oh, The latest gossip was that the government knew all about that they had a risky case and they were going to ship him off to America. Really? That's I what they're that. saying. Yeah, the opposition have said, oh, obviously the government knew because they were in talks with America to send the guy over there. Okay, so if the opposition said that, it definitely wasn't the case. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> like, see, but, but like, you know, this, this s- is news corps who are yeah. digging up fresh bodies to... Yeah. Then it's complete nonsense then. I think, I think they were... Surprised, right? I think, but yeah. Anyway, reading a book at the moment. Might talk about next week. The Identity Trap: A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time by Yasha Munk. And it's talking about the way that we have shifted from universal ideas of treating everybody equally. To, to treating people based on their identity and creating special laws that apply based on identity. And it's a really good read so far. And I just, as I read it, I am just applying these concepts to the whole voice debate and how we approach that. And so finding that quite interesting. So if you're interested in, in the idea of identity politics and how, and how the world has moved from universal rights of equality to rights that depend on your identity, then I recommend this and I'll probably talk more about it next week, I reckon. So that's the identity trap. Hmm. And that's about it, dear listener. I reckon we've gone through it all. Anything you got to just got to talk about it all? But, uh, 
Europe's lurch to the right was something that the better half was talking to me about tonight. He was mm. concerned, I think, was probably where it was basically headed, was with Gert Wilder's ascension to the Prime Ministership of the Netherlands. Mm. He likes to throw rocks at Angela Merkel wherever he can because he said that he said that it was her, you know, that saying, oh, yes, we can and that sort of thing when they opened up the borders and let all those people in from Syria and everything else. And he was saying that he believes that Gerd Builders is a example of what was going to happen from that type of thing. Now, I haven't read enough about the Netherlands or anything else as to whether or not they have a big Islamic population or anything else. But it really wouldn't surprise me that that could have been one of the things that kicked him in the head because I think it was you, Trevor, that said that once the population of Muslims gets up to 5%, then they start to agitate for their own laws and that type of thing. So it really wouldn't surprise me that that could have actually happened over there. Mm, could have. Yep. Yeah. So Ayan Hersi Ali was um, uh, mm. a Dutch refugee and yeah. she's written quite extensively about her experiences as a new immigrant and mm. um, she was saying that she had come from a tribal regime and to be suddenly dumped in a very, very different society, being given money by the government uh, and she couldn't understand how it all works and she had a, a contempt for it. Uh, and mm. she says that we as a society are doing immigrants a disservice by not embracing them, by not, uh, by, by basically just dumping them into the community and saying, there you are, get on with it, mm. rather than this is what the laws are, this is how our society works. Uh, she, she advocated actually for church groups to go out and embrace them, but there's no reason it couldn't be other community groups. Mm. Mm. Well, integration's a dirty word. Assim sounds like assimilation, not the dirty word. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those things. It's, uh, I honestly believe we've actually got to actually, yeah. we've, got to have a, we've got to have several serious conversations in this country, and one of them has to be assimilation is not a dirty word. You know, mm. we've actually got to have a conversation with everyone to make them understand that assimilation is not a dirty word. Mm. You know? See, that's what the Chinese said to the Uyghurs. Yes, Essentially, yeah, I know. Well, they, they, I, they, they, they education camps, terrorists, and they said, "Guys, this is how our country works." Off you go yeah, to re-education camp, re-education camp where they and, beat and the just, shit out of them and all and, that sort of stuff, well, and make them work for nothing. But you know, it's it, just one of those things. It's all part of the training program, isn't it, Trevor? But, well, but well, just, the, just, the Uyghurs just, actually just, weren't fresh immigrants, uh, and. Well, but hang on. They, exactly. they had lived there for a very long yeah. time. You're, you're, and and they've, also, and they've also had I'm, their country, they've also had their part of the country taken over they, by the Han Chinese. The Han Chinese have been moved out there and they tried to dilute them. And they, yes, they were the only people that weren't required to abide by the one abide by the one child law and all that sort of stuff. But you know, I, I it's think one of those bloody brutal things that they've done. Well, assimilation is the destruction of the small parties' ways and means, yeah, of their history of their the culture. Minority. Assim assimilation, I think, is uh, um, a fusion of taking the best of both. 
Mm. You'll find that the Uyghurs have got a thriving Uyghur culture. Mm. Like they're able to practice their culture, no problem. Right. Yeah, no, it's one of those things. That, that, that it's just... It just... You know, you just only two minutes ago you were saying about teaching people about teaching people word. about no, what our country's about, and then I say, well, that's yeah, what the Chinese did, and you just went off and said, well, yeah, but but except in that situation, like it was exactly the concept that you were arguing for. But when I no, point out that that's what the Chinese arguing. did, you were, you were, you were, uh, yeah, you've got me there. All right, I have to go away and think about that. There we go. It's one of those things I just think to myself that what was I saying? You've got to remember, you've got to be careful about what you Sorry? What's that? So the, uh, the, the Uyghurs are closer to the Aboriginals in that. No, uh, this, the Uyghurs were conducting jihadist terrorism, like elements oh. of them were. So that was the problem. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I don't right. think they were all involved in no. that. No, of course not. It's and not one all of them ended up in concentration camp. When a no, not all of them camp. did, but a lot of them did. Though end up in re-education camps, mm. and a lot of them, a lot of them were working for slave labour. Well, we don't know. It's very hard to know what went on. No, exactly because there's a, a Christian nutter is is the main person that the world's relying on for what actually happened with the Uyghurs. That's the problem. Who is that? Oh, he was like a Christian nutter of some sort. Is the I can't remember his name, but he's the main source of. Isn't that of a tautology? Whole, yes, it is. Indeed. Anyway, yeah, a bunch of Arab countries have been over there now and said it's all good. We're happy with how our okay. Islam brothers are being treated. And thanks for the bridges and the roads and the Belt and Road. Oh, well, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go. We're done and dusted for another episode. We'll be back next week. We're going to talk about identity for sure. So, see do I have to read this book or not? No, I'll just provide notes. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right. We'll talk about stuff then. Um, talk to you then. Bye for now. And it's a good night from me. And it's a good night from him. Good night.